Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, writer for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about open strategic autonomy, an incoherent sounding string of buzzwords designed to reconcile opposing positions among the EU's member states. But also, as this episode will explain, so much more. We'll try to explain where this concept came from and what it means in practice. And we will be joined by a couple of very special guests. Hi, I'm Jonathan Hackenbush. I work at the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm a policy fellow for geoeconomics, uh, sanctions policy, and trade policy. Jonathan heads a task force for strengthening Europe against economic coercion. Hi, I'm uh, Jana Dreyer. I'm the founder and editor of Borderlex.net. Borderlex is the leading news website on trade policy in Europe. To understand the phrase open strategic autonomy, you have to understand something important about the EU. A lot of the time, it is a collection of 27 squabbling member states. And when it comes to many areas of foreign policy and national security, these member states, these these different member states, have very much not delegated powers to the European Commission. So, So policy there is very fragmented. And there is a sense that this fragmentation makes the EU vulnerable. It means that that foreign powers can exploit differences between EU member states. So, for example, the, the Chinese just needs to make friends with the Hungarians if they want to block coordinated EU action in, in that national security space. So the the phrase open strategic autonomy has its origins in the sense that that fragmentation is increasingly a problem. It's a problem in the context of Russia and China as, as growing challenges and also the US becoming a less reliable partner. Here's Iana. The open strategic autonomy term has a history and it was first called strategic autonomy. Uh, And it first emerged in the foreign affairs circles of the EU. There is a 2016 strategy document of the European External Action Service, sort of the foreign ministry, so to speak, of the EU, which is called a Global Strategy for the European Union Foreign and Security Policy. And there is another title to it, Shared Vision, Common Action, A Stronger Europe. (laughs) So this shows that all this is a bit aspirational. This is about trying to get the EU to have a coherent, joined up, both vision of the world and then joined up action. The foreign policy types started with strategic autonomy, but then the economic policy people started talking about it too. Because they also felt like the EU was becoming more vulnerable. Remember, the EU is massively export-oriented, and particularly important member states like Germany. In 2019, U.S. exports were 12% of of GDP. That year in Germany, exports were 47% of its GDP. And in terms of potential threats, just take China. There was a sense that China wasn't playing fair and that its state subsidies were distorting the European market. There's also signs of of China increasingly abusing its economic size 
threatening to impose tariffs on car imports from Germany if Germany, say, excluded it from its 5G network. And when European retailers started to make noise about human rights issues in Xinjiang, the Chinese boycotted companies like Adidas and H&M. Plus, Europe has watched China's increasingly aggressive behavior toward countries like Australia, curbing a, a chunk of Australian exports as punishment for Australia's demand to investigate the, the origins of COVID-19. It's not just China. The, the U.S. made European policymakers anxious, too. There was a guy, you may have heard of him, called President Donald Trump. Um, he applied U.S. tariffs on European steel and aluminium. He threatened tariffs on German cars. Uh, he threatened unilateral tariffs on European exports of things like wine, luxury goods, um, after a Section 301 investigation um, into French and, and other member states' digital services taxes. This was unusual because normally one would expect that kind of complaint to go through the World Trade Organization's multilateral body. But instead what happened is the, the Trump administration just went unilaterally. And this is related to the other thing that is making the EU feel really uncomfortable, the loss of the WTO's multilateral system of, of settling disputes. After the Trump administration killed it, we're now basically in a world based on power and, and, and not rules. And the EU doesn't like that. The EU really, really likes rules. Partly that's because when they have to operate outside that legalistic model, it's very hard for them to, to get consensus. They end up having fights between members who are worried about the, their export interests, say Germany or the Netherlands, and, and members who are happier about putting up trade barriers like France. And if you can't get consensus, then you oftentimes end up doing nothing. And other countries see that, and that then makes the EU vulnerable. So EU types are worried that other countries were, were basically taking advantage of their inability to act. Now, so far, we've been talking about the EU's kind of general vulnerabilities. Uh, but although EU types have been feeling anxious, obviously, again, the EU is a collection of member states. And, and importantly, thinking among some very important ones has been changing as well. Most importantly, in Germany. Um, again, traditionally, Germany has been a state that's pushed for openness. It's heavily, heavily export dependent. And so it has worried that trade tangles could, could threaten its exports. But over the past few years, there has been a shift. You've got German companies realizing over the past few years that, that hang on, our Chinese customers are becoming our Chinese competitors. That's not very comfortable. And, and hey, we're a bit concerned that they're becoming our competitors with unfair help. Um, perhaps they're being handed out subsidized loans or, or that sort of thing. Now, th there are other worries as well. Here's Ayana. There, there's a reassessment of uh, very strong dependence on exports to China. There is a real pause in thinking about the dependence on exports to the United States. Germany has been on the receiving end of uh, many of uh, Donald Trump's um, rather hostile trade policies to, uh, towards the EU. Uh, German cars, uh, it's German steel is very affected by the Section 232 uh, government. So there, there is a sense that 
there is a great vulnerability here that this sort of export-driven model uh, has its risks. It's less on the import side there in the German part. But the import side of things is more sort of a very French way of thinking, which has more to do with France's nervous breakdown about being less industrialized in Germany. Germany is obviously very big and important within the EU. And so they've really tipped the balance of thinking towards this idea that there needs to be a shift away from the old naive attitude to trade, where the EU can rely on, on a limited set of trade defenses and a multilateral trading system to, to protect its interests. So in 2019, the new president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, said that she was going to run a geopolitical commission, essentially in response to the ways in which trade conflict is increasingly defined by, by political power struggles. Um, they would see themselves as responding to a changed geopolitical global context. So we have this new geopolitical commission, and then the pandemic happened. And everyone who didn't really like globalization before sees the opportunity to say, hey, this openness thing really leaves us vulnerable. We're just too dependent on imports in certain critical areas, and we should do something about that. I think the term open strategic autonomy reflects there is a very fierce debate within the EU over the issue of how to translate, you know, managing new vulnerabilities without becoming protectionist. I think that is a big big question. The pandemic has made people realize that there were vulnerabilities. We were very dependent on imports of masks from China, for example, and there were barriers, there were export barriers to active um, pharmaceutical ingredients from India. Some countries started uh, introducing export uh, bans of, of vital products for the EU. So there was a sense that we needed to ha control our production chains more. But there is, was also a big call from large part of the population from countries like France, but not only. I think this is a general sentiment uh, that we need to just deglobalize, reshore and reindustrialize and make it everything on the EU continent. This is something that uh, the, EU, the commission, which came up with this term open strategic economy, has been pushing back against saying, no, we, we as a European continent depend so much on trade for prosperity, we cannot close down. Supply chains actually have worked very well in many areas, but it's also a recognition that something needs to be done about managing those vulnerabilities. In 2021, the European Commission had this opportunity to set out what its trade policy strategy was. It published its trade policy review, and that was where it mentioned this phrase, open strategic autonomy. Um, so slapping open on the beginning there is a sort of uh, retort, a rejoinder to those who wanted to essentially respond to the pandemic by bringing production back home. The message was that one can still be strategic and, and autonomous while being open. 
Now, this confused a lot of people um, because if you're open, then you lose some autonomy. Openness means that other countries have economic relationships with you. There are commercial relationships that you you then don't want to jeopardize. And that means that other countries have leverage over you. They can threaten to, to screw up these commercial relationships. Um, so that's one kind of point of confusion. But but when I spoke to Hosokli Makiyama of the European Centre for International Political Economy, um, his interpretation was that we should really stop worrying about these words contradicting each other. This term is all about having options. So if everything is at home, that's no good. Um, a shock could hit you there. So you, you do need to be open. But if everything is in China, that's not good either. That means essentially China has lots and lots of leverage over you um, and you lose autonomy. So being open and having lots of different suppliers could improve one's autonomy. You have more options. Other countries are going to find it harder to push the EU around. So that's how to make sense of these three words slapped together. Let's talk now about what all this open strategic autonomy stuff means for policy. Broadly speaking, there's two sections. There's the the stuff that's happening at home and the stuff that's externally facing. Starting with the first of those, the really obvious shift has been toward stronger support for industrial policy. So effectively, state intervention to support particular industries. Here's Ayana. Uh, so far, the policy has been to refrain from doing too much industrial policy. At the same time, there has never been no industrial policy in the EU. What what we see is, is, is an emerging picture. It's still quite foggy. But we had a revised industrial strategy come out um, in the summer this year, which was very interesting. And it was backed by a study of 200 80-page report or something on 14 sectors, ecosystems, as they call call them, where the commission is trying to figure out what are the production networks, who depends on whom for what. And then there were preliminary results showing that uh, in some vital sectors, such as semiconductors, digital pharmaceuticals, that uh, there are specific vulnerabilities because there are too many imports are can can be too one-sided so that is um in a very simplified way what what they found it's still quite murky but what is clear that there are a few sectors where there will be much more intervention we can already identify some of them aerospace the whole digital thing electronics energy, clean energy, transport mobility, and then raw materials, sourcing of raw materials, critical raw materials. The strategy existed already, but it has been reinforced. Um, and there's a real fear of, depending on China in particular, uh, for some raw materials necessary for battery production. I think the question is what exactly the EU is going to do, having identified these strategic industries Because relatively speaking, the EU has pretty tight fiscal constraints. Uh, It's it's really not like the US. 
There is some funding for important projects of common European interest, a few billion dollars. Um, battery companies got, got some of that. And, and I expect to see more of that kind of thing. But in some cases, this kind of centralized funding may not appear. They may not manage to coordinate on this stuff. And there's a real risk that if the EU member states don't coordinate on this stuff, that they'll basically end up in a race to the bottom and end up competing with each other for, for these new investments. In semiconductors right now, you're seeing huge interest in getting more production in the EU, but a number of member states are, are trying to entice chip makers to their country. And it's not great if, if Germany ends up fighting with, say, Belgium over who can offer a bigger subsidy to some semiconductor company that's not a not a good use of public funds and they just end up bidding up the the price being paid by taxpayers where there aren't the funds to spray at these projects there could still be intervention it just could look a bit different it could look like say setting up networks to help match investors to potential projects this is what the European Raw Materials Alliance is trying to do. I, I spoke to them and they were they were telling me about the increased interest there is in, in these kinds of projects investing in, in things like rare earths that are so crucial for production of, of these strategic industries. Matching people is, is fine. But if there is government support with funding, then one worry is that governments end up encouraging lots of extra capacity. And then once all of these companies are invested, everyone starts producing too much. If this were a private markets thing, some of those companies might fold, but with the government support there, they might stay open. And then there would end up being a temptation by governments to protect those industries from foreign competition through probably additional trade barriers. We asked Diana whether she thought that this could descend into a blaze of protectionism. It's it's the murky type of protectionism that one will see. We need to look at potential standards development <laughs> that will favor this and that person. In some areas, a watch out for a few anti-dumping trade defense duties further down the line. I've recently made the parallels between current industrial policy on the one hand and the fact that there have been recent trade defense action in the other. The commission denies there's a link, but there's obviously a link. For example, the strengthening of, of steel protection in recent years, sort of a real ramp up of steel anti-dumping action. The safeguard, the import safeguard that was introduced in 2018, first in response to the Trump administration safeguard. So there was fear of overcapacity and a big flow. But this has turned into something else. It was just extended for three years this summer, unprecedented. And what one hears, uh, the murmurs in the background, that this is a lot about allowing the steel industry to do its climate transition as well. But also, you know, this is about keeping, keeping domestic production going. It has to do with a parallel hydrogen an alliance as well. So they want the German government seems interested to develop green hydrogen and have the steel industry use that hydrogen. So there's a lot of pushing and shoving, which is part of this murky complex of metals uh, protectionism. So this is targeted. We're not, you know, seeing the EU going to erect all sorts of barriers everywhere. But 
there will be side effects there. What I'm curious about is about what will happen in the aerospace um, aircraft sector. It's still nascent, but uh, as the EU and the US discuss, they're still supposed to work out a final deal on Airbus and Boeing about what kind of subsidies are allowed, not allowed, and things like that. I, it's going to be interesting to watch. It's not there yet. I mean, the the announcement is expected for in a few months, but I think it's a it's an interesting space to watch. Okay, since Diana just mentioned discussions between the EU and the US, let's talk about what's going on internationally. Because as well as strengthening domestic production, the EU is trying to to shape its economic relations with other countries. That's partly by building more defensive tools. We'll, We'll get to those. But it's also about building stronger alliances. And in particular, trying to repair its relationship with the United States. I've been really struck by how much the experience of the Trump administration damaged trust uh, from Europeans in Americans. And even now under the Biden administration, officials know, people know that the Americans could vote in another Donald Trump. Now, to give the other side, I think on the American side, there has long been a perception that the Europeans are a bit annoying. Um, they they don't want to pick a side. While the U.S. is putting lots of skin in the game, it's going after China's bad practices wholeheartedly. The EU is is too worried about its export interests to join in too loudly. Now, I think the EU might say, look, we're being pragmatic about what saber-rattling could possibly achieve. And, and in practice, you know, the EU tried to do a deal with China, but the EU-China Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, or the, the CHI as it's known, um, that deal is in the deep freeze. Meanwhile, the EU Trade and Technology Council, this EU-US um, partnership, coordination, discussion, whatever you want to call it, that is in full swing. So, you know, look where the EU's priorities lie. So that Trade and Technology Council, the, the TTC, uh, Chad, you and Cecilia Malmstrom wrote the note on what this is recently. So, so why, don't, why don't you explain what exactly it is? Yeah, Cecilia Malmstrom is the, the former EU trade commissioner and, and now my colleague at the Peterson Institute. So the, this new Trade and Technology Council, the, the TTC, they announced it back in June and the first meeting was in Pittsburgh on September 29th. Some heavy hitters are involved, people like current EU Trade Commissioner Valdis Dombrovskis, uh, and on the U.S. side, the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai and, and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. There's a lot of stuff that's that's going into it. There are 10 different working groups at this stage. They'll discuss things like cooperation over export controls for third countries for sensitive technologies, so semiconductors. They'll also try to share information better on foreign investment screening. So say if a, if a bad guy threatens to buy some important American tech company and the U.S. government learns about that, they would share that information with Europe so that Europe doesn't allow them to buy a, a, a European company instead. They're also going to try to work toward new standards for, for technologies like artificial intelligence to better protect human rights. And that could include rules to, to stop human surveillance that might target minority groups. I guess because it's still at such an early stage, right now the, the concrete policy changes do seem quite far off. But the point 
of this new TTC is it's an attempt to be much more collaborative and constructive, supposed to to reset the transatlantic tone so that we get away from that tariff threat kind of world. Generally, it's much healthier when the two sides are, are talking to each other. And yes, I, I did notice the whole submarines thing with the French. The French were upset when the Americans messed up that the, the French defense contract with the Australians for some weapons. There were lots of drama. But now the two sides are talking, and hopefully I won't ever have to think about submarines again. Hang on. This is trade and submarines. This is excellent Trade Talks content. We, we will return to that, probably. But so while the EU and the US are making up, the EU is also gathering new tools. It is trying to add defenses uh, to try and stop other countries from abusing its, its openness. Here's Iana. So we have a few instruments in the making. Some of them are a recycling of old ideas. Uh, there is an um, uh, international procurement instrument, which is in one thing's in the final stages of being um, put together by the legislators. Uh, the aim here is to allow the EU, the, the Commission, to order governments to suspend or increase prices of to, paid to foreign bidders whose home country does not open the public procurement markets in the same way as the EU does to them. So it's a way of saying, okay, we stop this big dredging contract for now. I'm going to talk to your government. Could be. China. You have this SOE here on that bit. We guys, China, we can't go, you know, to your market. How about you open your market? Otherwise, we're going to keep you out. That's the idea behind it. It's an old idea that got stuck, but with this current uh, environment, it's got, uh, gained traction again, uh, and reluctant member states are more open to the idea. So that's one aspect. Wait, can, before you move on, um, can you tell us a bit more about how that would work exactly? There are two options. One is that in the end, the bidder get excluded for the, from the market if the negotiations fail. This is still being negotiated, the exact, uh, fine print now. Uh, so the op one option is a full exclusion from the bid. The other option is to force local government to pay higher, a higher fee so that to, to equalize basically the competition conditions, which many think is not the most effective and there will be a big battle with the European Parliament. The Parliament is pushing for exclusion. We will see how this works out, uh, which one is more important. It, I don't think it's countervailing duty. <laughs> it's very sui generis, I would say. Sorry, I cut you off. Um, let's go on now. Can, can you tell us a bit about the other instruments that the EU is developing, like uh, the anti-subsidies instrument? Uh, how does that work? Yeah, so you have, a, I don't know, an electronics company <laughs> backed, uh, a Chinese electronics company setting up shop in the EU, selling at very competitive prices, outbidding European competitors, uh, and people start looking and thinking, hmm, that's interesting. Um, how competitive are you? And then the, the, the European Commission would uh, then start an investigation, as it does, both on its state aid uh, component or its anti-dumping component. It's sort of the similar 
a similar method and decide whether there has been a you know subsidy back home which distorts competitive conditions on the EU market. It, it targets big Chinese businesses mainly, um, but it would probably also affect other players, Russian players, maybe in future American players. I don't know. I mean, it depends on where US policy goes. Big emerging market players, that's important. The, the, the also, it, it, companies who invest will need to pre-comply. So there's also a sort of a declaration aspect uh, to it. So when you when you set up shop in the EU, you'll have to declare if you have subsidies, if you receive subsidies back home. So, you know, all the lawyers on are telling their companies, you know, be careful. <laughs> Those policies are, are a bit farther along in the legislative process. Now I want to hear about another one of those tools, which is much newer and where we haven't seen the details yet. So next we're going to hear Jonathan Hackenbroek talking about something called the anti-coercion instrument. Jonathan works for the European Council on Foreign Relations and was part of a project recommending a, a, a version of this thing. Now, obviously, the European Commission is going to come up with their own version but we thought it would be interesting to talk about how Jonathan and his colleagues, at least, were thinking about this. So, Jonathan, can you start by explaining what specific problem this anti-coercion instrument is trying to solve? Where is the gap in, in the EU's toolkit? Right. So that's and that's what we did first. We thought about what is is there a gap? Because we've we've seen that the, the EU has a lot of instruments in place and has added quite a few in recent in recent times. When you think of its trade policy or its broader economic policies, um, is there a gap? And and that's a that's a highly important question. And we thought there's there are four aspects to this where where there is a gap. And one is trade being used as a weapon. The second one is swiftness of coercion, how, it, how it's being used, gray zone tools, um, when, when uh, other powers use, use tools that may be WTO compliant even, possibly, or where it's not clear, and that leaves very little room for the EU to, to respond. And then a very unique feature is that economic coercion oftentimes divides, or if it's designed well, you don't, you, you don't, you, you don't unite Europeans against uh, the coercer against you as the coercer, but you but you probably asymmetrically hit different sectors, different countries, uh, and, and and ideally avoid EU unity against that action. How do you define coercion? Is it concerned that European exporters will will be hit abroad, or is it that the threat of retaliation is preventing European governments from implementing policies that they want to impose? I think that's a key question, and it's, and it's not that easy actually. But but I think it's both, and I think that's exactly that gets to the core of the issue because I think the starting point, certainly for us, was is, is policy is uh, is not pure, you know, economic losses um, uh, by anyone. Um, but the way coercion works today, most effectively, or the more sophisticated forms of of coercion, are actually those where you where you can influence the behavior of private sector actors, which then de facto alter, alters the policy or leaves less room for the policy, for the, for the government to, to implement a certain policy. And, um, and the prime example for, for that, of course, are U.S. financial sanctions. There's no question. And, and the tr Trump's use, that's over now, fortunately, but um, at least for the time being. But, but Trump's use of them 
At some point, he threatened to cut off European trade from Turkey, a NATO ally. You know, those kind of things that never materialized. But facing that for a week, a signed executive order for that, uh, just made Europeans think about that and pointed to the fact that China will soon be in position in a position to use similar leverage and and has in fact now put in place a range of instruments that it can use and there is a completely different story of course because it's not your your best friend across the Atlantic who will take your interests and and perspectives uh, into account okay the EU is worried then about being bullied by other countries this is coercion. Uh, the WTO is slow and it only assesses government's actions relative to the rules. It doesn't look at their intent. So so with this new instrument, presumably EU member states are going to decide when they feel that they are being coerced and when international law is, is being broken. And in that case, this instrument will allow them to apply some kind of countermeasure. And we, we don't know exactly what the EU will come up with, of course. But, but Jonathan, when you were thinking it through, uh, what were the options that you recommended? So the fundamental problem you have as the EU, when you think about concrete countermeasures, is that you need a countermeasure that is actually effective. So that will impress a third state like China. But that's also credible that you're, that you're going to impose it given EU decision-making and so forth. So take tariffs, probably very credible that the EU could impose them uh, because it's centralized authority in Brussels. We've seen it do that uh, on, in other occasions, for example, in, in response to Trump's aluminum and steel tariffs. But is it going to be effective? Is it going to be going to change China's behavior? I think the one lesson we've learned from maximum pressure, the maximum pressure campaign is that tariffs don't necessarily change behavior. Uh, in China. So you need a broad toolkit of possible measures, and it could consist of trade curbs. You could do ex um, one thing that could actually be sort of effective uh, could be access restrictions to public procurement, because that's a market that the EU can quite easily uh, close for third country uh, operators. Investment restrictions in, in the EU, but question is how much is that really in Europe's interest to close its market to to uh, to outside in, uh, investors, and um, and one thing that we would argue with is is really important and slightly more difficult to and in terms of credibility because it's more difficult for the EU to decide upon that. But there is a way is for is export controls uh, because that could be withholding a certain technology. We've seen that the US do against China, withholding a certain technology that. That China, for instance, is really interested in, that could have an effect. That could be also that could also come without the broad damage that tariffs do, be it on your own economy, but also you know on world trade, and could be a quite nimble tool to to use um, effectively as a countermeasure. The idea is that this thing would would never be used, right? I think the the ideal scenario would be to put this instrument into place to have its effect as a deterrent, to trigger dialogue with other powers that would otherwise use economic coercion against Europe, and to not have to use the countermeasures. The paradox of deterrence is that that's more likely to work if it's very credible that the EU could use the, the measures. So it, and it may be that you need to establish that and, and actually use it once, uh, at least, to show that you're willing and, and able to do it. But I don't think this would be an instrument that the EU would be very keen on using 
in any way and would use very often, but could use very forcefully if need be. To me, the the big EU shift here is that this appears to massively undermine the WTO. One of the, the great things about the WTO is that governments don't decide for themselves when another country has done something wrong because of the problem that if you start unilaterally taking action to the other country, it looks like they're just being attacked. Isn't there a, a, a huge risk that this is just part of an arms race that undermines the WTO, which so far at least the EU has always outwardly indicated it, it, it wanted to strengthen? That's a, that's a key question. And I think there is, I think it would be wrong to say there's no risk to, to that. So, so I think there is a risk. And um, so we, we spend a long time thinking about that. And, and we believe in the end, there is a way and an avenue for making it work. But, but it's, and, and by, you know, with, to mitigate the risk uh, in sufficient ways that that's not the case, but the risk needs to be addressed. So I think concretely, you have to be talking about very grave cases of economic coercion where you're really talking about either massive damage or or key interests, key policies that, that we're thinking about, not just any kind of bullying below a, a relatively high threshold. That's one thing. Another thing is to be to be clear that this is Actually, this is uh, in, in this is action under international law, which which others are using too. I mean, it's the WTO doesn't exist without a context, without a broader international context. And the problem that the EU is facing is that that other great powers have some, have put in place so many instruments, economic instruments, and that you're in a great power competition that works mostly through economic links and that weaponizes economic links. Is that if you're not if you don't put something in place to deter that, you could actually doing, be doing more harm to the WTO than, than the other way around because you're, you're making it easier for others to use such economically coercive measures, which oftentimes are violations of the WTO, at least in the spirit uh, of the WTO uh, treaties. And so there's a fine line between not becoming like China certainly uh, not. And on the other hand, not making it too easy actually to go around to, to violate rules. And so, and back, backing actually, backing rules up with sort of a possible robust countermeasure that you have in the, uh, that you have in your backhand that you ideally never use, but you could use. And therefore a cooperation and going through the WTO makes, is, is something that's, that gets incentivized for others. That is the fine line one would have to find. Um, again, there's a big risk, certainly, that that's involved, that it could go wrong if it's not designed well. Now, this may be an unsatisfactory ending, but I think we are just going to have to wait and, and see how this all pans out. And in an ideal world, yes, the WTO would be there. But, but as an individual WTO member, if others aren't playing by the rules then it may not be in your best interest. It may not be rational to just sit there and do nothing. So there's a, a football match referee analogy. Um, it, it would just be best if everyone could agree the rules and play a clean, fair game. But if someone has knocked out the referee and is running around the pitch with a machete, you probably shouldn't just carry on trying to get the ball in the goal. Like You should maybe get some shin pads or some kind of armor. 
and maybe a small machete uh, if that if that's available to you. So for me, what's happening here? It looks like the the EU is is arming up with all of these tools. This could potentially help contribute to stability. Maybe the EU ends up getting threatened less by those external forces because it now has a, a greater capacity to fight back. But there's also this risk that these new policies end up getting abused. They end up becoming captured by special interests and, and, and used as a tool of protection, even where there is no threat of coercion to fight off. And to your point on the WTO, I don't think this is a particularly good sign for those holding out hope that the major players, Europe, the United States, and China, are going to return to the multilateral system anytime soon. Increasingly, it looks like rules are out and power is in. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Jonathan Hackenbroek at the European Council on Foreign Relations and to Iana Dreyer of Borderlex.net for helping us explain what open strategic autonomy means for European trade policy. And thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks.